Welcome to episode 10 of the Language Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephen Wilson. Today my guest is Pascal Tremblay, who is Professor of Rehabilitation Sciences at University Laval in Quebec City, Canada. Pascal has done outstanding work on the neuroscience of speech and language, especially speech production, and one of her major lines of work looks at the effects of aging on these systems. She has a number of insightful theoretical papers on the architecture of the language network, in which she emphasizes and advocates for the importance of white matter tracts, papers with titles such as Broca and Wernicke are dead, or moving past the classic model of language neurobiology. This work is going to be the focus of our discussion today. Pascal has also performed an incredible service for our field by co-founding the Society for the Neurobiology of Language. We'll talk about that too. Okay, let's get to it. Hi, Pascal. How are you? Hi, Stephen. I'm, I'm good, and you? Yeah, I'm good. And so you're in Quebec City? Uh, yes. And how are things in Quebec City today? It's getting much better. There's no snow anymore. And, um, you know, we're starting to um, get over the third wave. So. so you're like having the end of snow. I mean, like here in Nashville, it's like sort of almost the beginning of summer. Like yeah, sn- no, snow just... is a distant memory. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's because, you know, Americans tend to think that there's a, it's always cold in Canada. It's actually about, it's going to be around 30 today, 30 Celsius. Oh, okay. That's like actually quite warm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed visiting Quebec City for the Neurobiology of Language Conference a couple of years ago. It was, you know, I don't know that I would have had a chance to go there otherwise, but such a cool city. It's very pretty. Yeah. It's a very old, uh, oh, no, old in our American standards. Right. <laughs> So, you know, on, on the podcast, I like to start by kind of getting to know how people got interested in the field of um, brain and language. So did you have any interests as a kid um, in either brain or language that would kind of like point to your future career? Uh, yeah, I was always interested in language. Uh, from as far as I remember, um, I wanted to study language, but I didn't know exactly what aspect of language I was um, going to be most interested in. So I... Uh, I was writing a lot as a kid. I thought I was going to be a writer. <laughs> and, uh-huh. uh, you know, my parents have these uh, comic strips that I, you know, and even novels that I wrote. <laughs> uh, and then I, uh, I went on to an undergraduate degree in uh, linguistics, uh, as I think many uh, language researchers have. Uh, and that's where I discovered that what I was really interested in was mostly in the mechanistics aspect and phonetics and speech. Uh, more so than what we typically refer to as language. Yep. And uh, and then I I sort of hesitated. I thought maybe I was interested in um, speech pathology, uh, but in the end I decided to go on to study the basics of speech uh, at the PhD level uh, at uh, McGill University with Vince Crackle. Right. And from there, I continued studying the neural basis of language, uh, you know, later on at University of Chicago with Steve Small, yep. and then in Italy uh, with uh, Uri Asson. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering who you had worked with over there. I, I saw that on your CV that you had been to Trento. Yeah. Such a wonderful place. I mean. Yeah. So. And then and then you've ended up back at the university that you did your training at, right? Yes. And that was part of my sales pitch when I interviewed that works so what's it like being a professor at your undergrad institution well it's not in the same um department at all i was i only did my undergrad here in uh, linguistics and now i'm a professor in uh, the school of rehabilitation sciences so it's in the faculty of medicine so it doesn't really feel like 
home and it had been well like returning home it had been so many years right like it's great but I mean it I felt like I had spent so many years um I mean I spent six years at McGill and then three other years away so it had been a long time right so it didn't really feel like a homecoming like academically but how about like family wise do you have are your family from Quebec City actually my family is from up north uh uh in the region that's called Saguenay uh there's where there's a fjord in the province of Quebec. Um, it's a very beautiful region. Oh, I bet. I'd love to go up there. I like the idea of being where there is no other people. Oh, it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, at the, you know, the, at the junction of the fjord and, uh, and um, you know, the the St. Lawrence River in the, in the ocean, and there's uh, whales, and it's beautiful. Wow. How far, how far is that from where you are now? Um, just, well, not from the junction but from uh to, from here to the region where my parents are it's uh, about two hours drive so it's 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 close okay maybe that's like an optimal distance to be away from your parents <laughs> <laughs> actually very close to my family so to me it's a little far it's a little uh, far yeah see i haven't seen my family for you know going on two years and like you know the australian border is closed and doesn't appear that it's going to get opened anytime soon so where is your family I mean, they're in different parts of Australia. Ah, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. God. Yeah, that's far. Yeah, it's two hours would be nice. Two hours seems really good right now. Yeah, two hours, perfect. Uh, yeah. Um, and so, obviously, you're a native French speaker, um, yeah. but bilingual. Did you grow up, like, fully bilingual in both languages, like most people in, like, many people in Canada? Uh, no, I mean, I think that's a misconception. I think... Uh, in Quebec, most people grow up uh, French-speaking, but they learn English at school. And in the rest of Canada, you know, they grow up English-speaking and they never learn French. Although there are French communities in the rest of Canada too, like in Ontario, in Manitoba, in, in the east of Canada. All right. Okay. So when did you learn English? That's cool. Like, but I think I really did learn it at McGill with, when I did my PhD. I mean, I did learn it. As a kid, then, you know, American culture is very much present throughout Canada. But, um, you know, using it on a daily basis, that was really at the PhD level. Right. Interesting. Were you like a natural language learner, do you think, when you encountered it, like in school? Did English come easily to you? I guess that's my question. If it came easy? Yeah. It's a hard question to, <laughs> to answer. Um, relatively easy because, as I said, I mean... It's not like, uh, you know, there's the influence of American culture, but also Canadian English culture onto Quebec. So for sure, we're like, we grew up and we sing English songs and then we sometimes watch English TV. And then, uh, so, um, so I think, yeah, probably it came relatively easy. Cool. Okay. So um, one of the many roles that you've performed in your career is being one of the founders of the Society for Neurobiology of Language um, with Steve Small. Can you tell me and our listeners about how that came to be. I think that that's something that many of us value greatly for what it's what you have done for the field. And um, I'd love to hear more about how that came to be. Um, I remember distinctly that at a lab meeting in Steve Small's lab, um, we were sort of complaining that there was no venue that really fit our need, uh, a place where you know, linguists and neuroscientists, psychologists, everybody interested in language could meet up and talk about mostly, and I say language in a very broad sense, obviously including speech. Um, and then we said, though, why not do it? <laughs> 
And it's basically, uh, I think from that conversation, and we just follow through with it. So I think, um, I mean, I, I, I was always involved at, throughout my um, academic career in organizing things. Like at all the levels I've been, I've organized something. Um, so I, very, I was very much happy or willing to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And, you know, Steve, um, of course, Steve knew everybody. So um, yeah, you combine those two <laughs> types of people and you've got a great committee uh, with great connections and, um, you know, people to do the manpower. And also Steve had um, a relatively large uh, lab at the time. And so uh, that was very helpful to, uh, you know, to be able to do um, a lot of the work. Because in the first years, we, we did most of the work uh, because the society wasn't established. So we didn't have... A, uh, a company running the show. It was really us that did everything. Right. I remember the first meet. I mean, it started with a meeting and I remember it. It was like a satellite to Society for Neuroscience in Chicago. Yeah. Um, was that, I mean, that was the first thing. Did you already think that there was going to be a society or did it kind of just start with that meeting? We just wanted to start with that meeting and see how it would go. And I don't know if you remember this, but we we ran out of space on that first meeting. We thought that there was going to be 50 people that would register, but there ended up being over 300. And <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I remember it being about 300. I didn't realize that there was a space problem, though. Well, it, it, there wasn't. We had to, you know, had an overflow room. I don't know if you remember that. And, you know, a lot of people complained, but we were like, look, uh, we really didn't expect that. And we're so happy that that's a very good problem. Right. And so, uh, no, and then we, we made it a satellite of SFN. It was a, a sort of a philosophical stand that um, we wanted to, uh, we wanted to tie it closely to neuroscience, not just and so, sort of to be a little distinct from other societies that have a more of a cognitive um, underpinning. So ours was going to be more of a biological underpinning. Yeah. And then, uh, well, the, the, the year after we did it again, since there was such a good reception and then people asked for another one and we were willing to do another one. And so the second one was in, uh, uh, in California, in San Diego. Yeah, I think I went to that one too. I was, um, it was really fun. It was uh, bigger and there's even more people. And that's when we started thinking about a society. Right. Because um, because we saw that, you know, the, re the reaction was so good. It was because people just like us, they, they felt like they were missing, uh, I think, a place to, uh, for exchange. So what other functions did you want the society to perform besides arranging the conference? Well, I think to be a place where, um, you know, discussion can occur in a more, more broad sense, uh, not just at the meeting, but outside the meeting. Um, so now the society has gone into, you know, uh, editing this journal, uh, open access journal. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's a great move. That's something we, we had in mind at the beginning, just didn't have the means, um, of course, to, to do this. So that's, that's a great. Yep. So you're uh, talking about, um, neurobiology of language, the journal. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, and now, you know, the society has moved in the recent years to having these uh, career awards and then for young researcher, older researcher. Uh, and I think that's also helped shape a community. Um, so, um, you know, there's little 
scholarship for traveling that the society has always offered. And so that's also something that is a role that the society can play. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate what you've done and I think it's made a big difference to the field. I think it has. I think it's, uh, I mean, I'm so happy that, you know, now it's, you know, I'm not involved at all anymore, uh, but I'm just so happy that it continues on. I mean, I did organize the, the 10th anniversary in Quebec city. All right. Yeah. Of course you would have been involved in that. (laughs) That was so much fun. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it continues and what's nice to see is that it grows and it changes and diversify and, you know, like everybody we know is getting involved somehow and, you know, taking turns and, you know, there's never a shortage of interested people, it seems. Right. And do you think we're going to be uh, having an in-person meeting in 2022? <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's a toughie. Isn't that the one in Australia? Uh, no, they will. Uh, what did they do? I think that they pushed that back further. I think Pittsburgh, isn't it? The No. Some some place in the mm. U.S. is the next one. Yeah, there was going to be Philadelphia this year, but then they made it virtual. They made it virtual. Yeah, I don't remember what's coming up, but I hope we get, get to be in person again. Soon. It would be, yeah, it would be nice. I mean, uh, it is all great because, I mean, it facilitates access to information for sure when it's online, but I, but the, we're missing the human factor, I think. Yeah, there's just this intangible aspect that can't really be replaced no not at all and plus i mean i don't know if you've experienced the same thing but it feels like there's so much now that um everybody double books and then you think that you have this day dedicated to this scientific day but in the end you end up you know working on your computer either at the same time or uh or you miss the the conference entirely exactly yeah i mean i think it, it is really hard to carve out the space unless you're physically removed from your duties yeah. and responsibilities. Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, we, I think we have so much work. I mean, so it, you know, we need a little <laughs> incentive to just uh, turn off our computer and listen. Yeah. Yeah. We deserve to like, you know, go and spend five days in some really interesting city and not have to take care of anything or anyone. Yeah. I, think, I mean, I think, I think we do. Yeah, I think everybody was looking forward to going to Australia, but uh, yeah, it'll happen. We'll, we'll, it will we'll happen. get there. We'll get there. They've they've been waiting for a long time for the Australian meetings. So I'm sure they won't let go. Yeah. So um, let's talk about your paper um, entitled "Broca and Wernicke are dead," or moving past the classic model of language neurobiology, um, and with your co-author Anthony Dick published in Brain and Language 2016. Um, it's quite a striking title. Um, it's become a highly cited and well-known paper. Um, can you tell me uh, how you came up with this title? <laughs> I'm trying to remember how we came up with the title. I know that um, Anthony had this idea to um, link it to the title of the, um, of this play that we quote uh, uh, recurrently in the in the paper, so but I don't remember if it came afterwards or if it initiated the the title. Uh-huh. Uh, but we were, you know, we were basically thinking it, uh, and so uh, we just um, we wanted to have a, a very clear title that you know was um, going to position the paper. Uh, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, it gets it makes your point very clear. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
Click move over, old dudes. Um, so what what are your big picture goals in this paper? So it, it was uh, to, um, it basically was to question the use of certain, um, certain concepts or certain models um, that, that still is in use actually today um, and to try to have the field think about it. I mean, of course, a lot of people have actually said very similar things to what we have said in this paper, right? But it didn't stick. And I'm not sure that our papers will do better in a sense. I mean, people are citing it, but I mean, I, I keep on reading other articles that still use the same terminology and concepts. So I don't, I don't know that it, it's had the impact that we wanted it to have. Um, but basically just reflect upon a few notions that I think that are basic scientific notion, like precision in defining concepts and agreeing on concepts in order to reach precision, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so the concepts in question relate to what you guys call the classic model, uh, what, you know, other people call the wernicke lichtheim model or the Broca-Wernicke lichtheim model or various other names. Yes. Well, Sometimes this Gershwin one is gets a, gets a, a call out too. Um, so, you know, what do you sort of see as being the central tenets of this classic model? Um, well, the central tenets of this model are that um, language is a basically specialized system, uh, a very simple specialized system composed of a, you know, superior temporal region uh, and an inferior frontal region. So basically known as Wernicke's area and Broca's area connected by a single pathway, the arcuate fasciculus. Um, and that it, this is the core of the language architecture. Uh-huh. Um, I guess, like, I, I feel like Wernicke had a somewhat more oh, nuanced yeah. and fleshed out vision than that, no? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, people have been arguing over this model, even from the very first time that it was called a model, right? That is true. But some of the ideas of, of Wernicke never made it through. And I mean, Lichtstein also argue against certain notions that were presented by Wernicke. And obviously, you know, that people have been going back and forth. I think the model that's most often cited is Geschwind's uh, version of it, which is actually simplified. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I guess I don't know if I entirely agree. Because, you know, you've got certainly, you know, Geschwind has this famous figure, right, where it's like Broca's and Wernicke's and they're linked by the arcuate fasciculus. But that's not all that there is to his model, right? I mean, he has like, you know, the angular gyrus playing this kind of role as a semantic hub. And he's got the, you know, both, you know, kind of following on from Wernicke and Lichtheim, he's got this whole sort of superstructure beyond the language system, whereby the language system has to kind of connect with conceptual representations in the rest of the brain. So it's not like that's all there is to it, right? Well, no, that's true. I mean, I only said the core. I think I thought you said the core tenets. Um, oh, okay. Um, yes, of course. Um, I don't think that, I don't think anyone believes that this, and ever did believe that there was, that was all there was to language, right? Neither Geschwind nor Vern, certainly not Wernicke and nobody else between the two of them. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, well, one of the notion that, uh, for example, in Geschwind's model, yes, of course, he talks about other region. Um, one thing that we uh, wanted to clarify was also the terminology. I think that even just the terminology, especially Wernicke's area. Yeah, I find that piece of it really fascinating, right? So 
you guys did this survey in 2015. And I, I remember being a participant. I yeah. think I can say that without <laughs> it being a human subjects violation. Um, and uh, yeah, so you, you surveyed people in the field um, of language neuroscience uh, about you know, what they thought about the classic model, as well as how they define those terms, Broca's area and Wernicke's area. Do you want, I mean, one thing that I found really, you know, very striking is that, and you say in the paper, only 2% of the respondents endorsed the idea that the classic model um, is the best available theory of language neurobiology. That's kind of striking, isn't it? Like, you know, given that, as you say, like it is still such a, a, a cornerstone of many people's thinking. Well, the the yeah i think well that we weren't surprised by this because i think that we we know that most people if not everyone in the field knows that uh even the most complex representation of this model still doesn't scratch the surface of the complexity of let's say the language in a in a broad sense architecture uh, so of of course they, they that's what they said um it's just, it's a model that has had a huge impact for developing the field, of course, historically. And even in this paper, we actually, we say it, we never said that it had no use. Mm -hmm. But I think what the paper shows, and it's something that we really wanted to get at, was that the use of this terminology, since nobody agrees on it, is not helpful. It's confounding. Do you want to kind of go through like what, you know, you ask people to basically pick you know, you showed pictures of what Broca's area and Wernicke's area could look like, six or seven different versions of each, and you ask people which one is the, you know, yeah. the correct. Which one do you think is the correct version? Yeah. And, and and so what did you find there? And and were you surprised or did it kind of conform what you were expecting? I wasn't surprised because Wernicke's area has never been properly defined. So for Wernicke's area, that really did match what I was in, in 22 uh, we're thinking, although maybe it was lower even than what we thought. Um, so basically, the definition that was the most uh, popular among the respondents was uh, one that we basically made up, and it was only 26% of the respondents. And all the other definitions were distributed, you know, one of the other, the Geshwin definition at 23%, and then the Penfield one at 12%, and the Desjardins one at 8%, and so on. Uh, there were seven different versions. And, and so this really does show that we are not in agreement with this. Nobody. Right. So it's a very imprecise term, I guess, is like your, your point. And, you know, just to kind of spell things out a bit in case, you know, obviously our listeners are going to be like doing the dishes or whatever, and they're not going to have like a, you know, a figure in front of them. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, for instance, you got Wernicke's original model where it's like the posterior superior temporal gyrus. You've got other versions where it's like, you know, closer to primary auditory cortex, other versions where it starts to get into angular gyrus and middle temporal gyrus, other versions where it's like more anterior. This is the kind of variability that we're talking about here. So you just think it's just basically a kind of problematic term because it doesn't have a shared definition. Well, yes. And I think a lot of people have said that and have proposed different solutions. So for example, Jeff Bender had a paper where he actually talked about the exact same problem. He instead proposed a new definition. Uh, we went around it in the other direction. That is, if we can't agree on it, why not stop using it instead? Um, obviously, I think none of those solutions has, <laughs> has worked out. As far as I can tell from the literature, people are still using those terms without defining them properly. 
or sometimes they do define them properly. Like, it's like, uh, okay, I'm going to use this label and this is what I'm going to refer to. Yeah. And this is, this is, this is at least helpful, but then one may might wonder why then if you have to define it, why do you not use the other labels? So for example, you read a paper and they would say, okay, I'm going to use Wernicke's area. I'm going to refer to as the posterior superior temporal gyrus. Uh-huh. Well, then why not use posterior superior temporal gyrus? Uh, why use this functional, ill-defined anatomical, uh, uh, yeah, uh, ill-defined functional term? Well, maybe it's useful sometimes to have a functional term instead of an anatomical term if you're, especially if it's kind of still up for debate, like what the relationship is between the two. Um, I mean, so I guess like that would be another possibility. Like I would say one of the big challenges with Wernicke's area in particular is that even though Wernicke was an absolute genius, um, he w- he was a little bit wrong, I think, about exactly where, I mean, to the extent that you buy into the model, which I do, you know, up to a point. Of course, um, the model isn't wrong, and it, it, we're saying it's more like incomplete. Yeah. So, okay, to the yeah, but to the the part of it that I think is true is that there's a region in somewhere in the back of the brain where there's um, some kind of representation of phonological forms. He doesn't use those words exactly, um, and I just think the problem is it's not in the STG; it's in the STS. <laughs> It's in the superior temporal sulcus, not in the gyrus. That's my view. I mean, it's not the view of everybody. Um, but, you know, that immediately for me creates a problem, right? Because if I use the word Wernicke's area, which he clearly described as the STG, that's a problem because that's not that the STG to me doesn't have the function that he ascribed to it. So generally speaking, I don't use the word Wernicke's area. I actually do accept your argument. It's too problematic. Um, I very rarely use it. Um, but I would... If I did use it, I would probably just redefine it as the STS. Exactly. And I would say Wernicke's area, which is actually in the STS, not quite where Wernicke thought it was, because I think the function of it is more important than the location. Would but, that have been an alternative for you, or you just, you just don't want to go there? I go back and forth with those functional labels. I, I, I don't know. I think sometimes they're very helpful to try to understand, you know, to sort of integrate physiology into anatomy. Uh, but Wernicke is not a functional name even, like it's just a person's name. Like what you're saying, for example, if you talked about phonological processing, for example, but that me, to me, that's actually at least a better label. It's, it's more specific. Um, and then if you defined it as being the posterior STS, for example, at least you would be clear. Um, <clears throat> so I wouldn't, I would think that that's a perfectly acceptable way to doing it. <laughs> But um, but then mapping Wernicke onto all of this, I don't know how it would even fit because Wernicke never even talked about phonological processing, for example. No, no. He, I mean, he called them the sound images of words or something in German that I don't know the original German, but it's translated into English as the sound images of words. And I kind of like ascribe him to mean phonology by that. Like, I don't, <laughs> yeah, there's something. What, what, yeah, of course. I don't know whether he really kind of, he wasn't, you know, a linguist or anything, but. No, I think he yeah. thought that these representations were somewhat abstract, and so I kind of give him credit for thinking that they were phonological representations, not just auditory ones. But like, maybe I'm just giving him. Oh no! I mean, he was clearly a visionary, and he's you know, it's not at all his fault that I mean, of course, he I think he did way better than expected at the time, uh, right? And he brought the field. I mean, I cr- he created the field in a sense, right? He did create the field of neurobiology of language. Uh, this is an humongous accomplishment. And I think we should never forget about this. I mean, we're not criticizing his work. We're just saying that perhaps right now in 2021, uh, when we have such better tools and it's been a long time, right? 
Um, my, my take on it is that it's been detrimental to some level to have this public image or idea that language is such a simple system. It doesn't help promote the field. It doesn't help understand um, so you know the complexity of the disease that people have, and for most of which we don't have effective treatments or even we don't understand the exact sources of their, you know, their language or speech issues, right? And so to have right. this so, you know, you have this so simplistic model and then people are asking, so why are you still studying this? Well, you know, well, that's because the model is probably correct in large parts. It's just incomplete, so incomplete, right? So it's also in the sense that we're sort of advocating, you know, you read any neuroscience textbooks and there's no other system presented as simplistically as language. Right, yeah. I do agree with that. And certainly in the in sort of the neurology world, you definitely get that very Oh yeah, and minimal, very classic and very minimal kind of depiction. Yeah, exactly. It. Is it So I think the people that work in the field know that, you know, it's, it's a lot more complex, but I don't know that it's crossed the boundary. And I mean, I see it is still in you know, psychology textbooks and I mean, psychology being taught by uh by by people not working on language. So all right. So, yeah. So you're making that argument that for you, it's like, okay, we, we're not, you know, you're not downplaying the the role of the classic model or its sort of formative um, accomplishment, but you think we just basically need to ditch the terminology of it entirely because it's just kind of too limiting to be having these broad terms that sort of have functions associated with them, but then are very loosely associated with anatomy in ways that apparently nobody agrees on. And to, you know, if we were to come up with an alternative to put in a basic textbook, at least we should make it more representative of what we all know is, you know, happening. It's, just, it's a very complex system, fully integrated with multiple other systems in the brain. So it helps nobody to present language as such a simplistic, I mean, as having such a simplistic architecture. Yeah, cool. Well, I like the paper a lot. We read it in our lab meeting a couple of years ago and oh, yeah? had, a, had a good time. Yeah. And I, and I reread it just now to talk to you. So it was enjoyable again. Okay. So in, in place of the, the classic model, um, you kind of in, in to some extent in this paper, but also in some of the other papers that you've written, um, put, lay out a more complex um, model of language in the brain um, where one of the major features is um, white matter tracts. And you really place a lot of importance on these tracks and um which are go far beyond the um icofasciculus and they have different um anatomy and roles functional roles um so i was hoping we could kind of talk through your view of the major tracks in the brain that um, contribute to language and i was going to mostly go back to your 2012 brain paper again with anthony dick and just kind of talk through the tracks and like how where they are and what you think they do. Um, and again, you know, this is going to be challenging, right? Because this is a very visual thing. And like, you know, we're going to be, we're auditory only here. So we're going to try and talk about these tracts in a way that people can like think about them while they're listening. So let's talk first about the superior longitudinal fasciculus and arcuate fasciculus. What, what is the relationship between those two concepts? I think it still isn't entirely clear for uh, for most people um, because the architecture of the arcuate fasciculus, even though that's the track, that's a one track, 
you know, connecting originally Wernicke to Broca's area. You know, that's the uh, that's the definition of what well, is the classic definition of the archid fasciculus. Um, I think that the anatomy of this tract actually is still very much debated, and that's sort of what we were trying to get a little bit at this paper. Um, so there's been a lot of different um, suggestions. So one of them, uh, you know, that was based on the macaque mostly, uh, was that the superior longitudinal fasciculus, which, you know, is proposed to have four different components, um, connecting different parts of, you know, going in the same sort of general area than uh, the archid fasciculus, but uh, connecting um, superior parietal regions to frontal region, um, different parts of frontal region um, in, um, and also inferior parietal lobule to frontal regions, uh, inferior frontal region, but sometimes more dorsal too, like not just inferior frontal gyrus. And uh, so, for example, in uh, in the view of uh, these uh, researchers working on with macaque and doing tracer injection, like Michael Petridis and Pandia and Schmaman, um, there's these four different components with three of them SLF, superior longitudinal fasciculus, plus the arcuate fasciculus. Mm-hmm. But what they would say, though, is that there is no direct connection between uh, the posterior SCG and the IFG, which is the very definition of the arcuate fasciculus as it was classically uh, defined. Yeah, so in the, in the and that work, as you mentioned, is based on um, tracer yeah. experiments in macaques, which can't be done in humans because it involves the tracer being injected into a live animal that's then sacrificed. Um, so... In their view, so the SLF, basically, it has these three components. They're basically all frontoparietal. It goes SLF1, 2, and 3 from dorsal to ventral. And so SLF3 starts to look very languagey because it's kind of like going from inferior frontal regions to inferior parietal regions, both of which we certainly think are involved in language. Uh, And then in their view, the arcuate, um, like you said, doesn't go actually to the IFG. Where where does the arcuate go in their view? Um, To BA6. Eight, nine, forty-six. So a little more dorsal than uh, uh-huh. the IFG uh, as it is defined uh, um, in a, in a macaque. Of course, one has to wonder because the anatomy of the IFG is different in the macaque and in the human. Um, it's a region that's extended in in humans. And I mean, we can argue probably all day about this, but you know, macaque they communicate for sure, but they don't speak in the same way as we do. So it's very possible that the architecture of the macaque tractography would be different from the human one. Yeah, I think that's kind of like the elephant in the room, right? I mean, like we're talking about the function which maybe most distinguishes us from macaques. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I find this research fascinating and I wish there was a way to do something this precise with humans that would not, of course, involve sacrifice. It's not what right. I'm saying. <laughs> but, <laughs> I thought you Canadians were supposed to be nice. I am. <laughs> and now you're advocating for like... <laughs> no, no. Obviously, something that we could achieve this kind of precision, uh, obviously, without having to sacrifice. So something entirely different, obviously. But I don't. I, that doesn't exist. So, so why, only... doesn't, why doesn't DTI or DSI, diffusion tensor imaging or diffusion spectrum imaging... Why, why doesn't that give us the same precision as these autoradiography radi- studies? 
Um, well, I think that in humans, I'll just get back to it, but I think in humans, you can do dissections and where you get a, a very good precision too, right? You you get specimen cadaver brains and then, uh, you know, trained uh, anatomists can actually dissect the fibers and identify their origin and termination very precisely. That has a limitation that usually very few specimens are available. So these studies are conducted on obviously people that have died and also uh, that are in a limited number. Though with the macaque work, it's also on very limited number of macaques, one has to point out. I think that's the second elephant in the room. The first is it's a macaque and the second is there's few of the macaques. Yep. So in humans, I think the best alternative we have is what you said, is the diffusion MRI technique. Um, The diffusion MRI technique, I think, is a very powerful and very interesting method, but it involves a lot of data processing and, you know, statistical analysis in a way that those analysis don't. So I think that the choice of the metrics that the researcher will use and the pipeline of analysis that they will choose can actually have a huge impact on the results. And I think that's why we are having this problem. You know, in in preparing for this interview, I thought, oh, no, yeah, let me, you know, see if we have solved some of the question that we raise in those papers. And in fact, if you ask me later, then my answer will be actually no. (laughs) I could ask you right now, retroactively (laughs) to what you just said. So, you know, yeah, you know, you wrote this paper in 2012, but yeah, we we are, you know, we're thinking about also 2021 and uh, have we learned anything further? And and I kind of agree with you to the best of my knowledge, which is not, you know. We have learned a lot, but that has not come into being a unified vision of any, as far as I know. I mean, I have not, I have to admit that as being like a researcher um, focused on speech mostly, I have focused much more on the dorsal tracts and on the fat tract, the frontal acid tract. And as far as I'm concerned with these tracts, we know more, but at the same time, we're further from a model that will resolve all the questions that we have. And the questions are, yeah, where are the terminations? Do we have really, um, you know, a connectivity between posterior superior temporal and inferior frontal gyrus in human? And um, so there's many different models nowadays. Um, and, you know, uh, people are continuing. Even in my lab, we've done some work with the arctic fasciculus. But, um, but yeah, the question remains enti- entirely uh, what model is correct. So nowadays, it, so first there's this question of whether there's this connection Mm-hmm. But then the track is so big. I mean, you know, most people have started to um, uh, to segment it into multiple subtracts. We uh-huh. talked about the SLF, as you, you talked about. And so some of the, diffu- the distinction of the uh, arcuate. So in the human literature, people talk a lot less about the SLF and they oftentimes will segment the arcuate into multiple different tracks yeah. that have this similar connectivity to the SLF. Sub, subtracts but you know people like Marco Catani he has this three component model and then others have two component models and some of the models have a connection to premotor cortex some don't right yeah I mean you're talking about the Catani paper where they kind of have like what they call the direct segment of the arcuate which goes between inferior frontal and posterior temporal and then they have two indirect segments that basically connect those same two regions but via the inferior parietal lobe yeah 
And, yeah. and, you know, you could view that differently and say, well, the one that goes from frontal to inferior parietal, that's kind of a lot like SLF3. Yes. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and I think this really, um, you know, you guys in your, in your 2012 paper make this really great point that I think a lot of people could do to, like, pay attention to, which is that these tracks are not really natural kinds, right? It's like, it's really just like a giant ball of spaghetti, and you can divide it up in different ways. Exactly. Depend, depending on your theory or depending on your method. It's not like the arcuate comes labeled in pink and the SLF is like in a, you know, a nice shade of purple. No, no, exactly. And it's, um, you know, it's difficult when you do uh, diffusion MRI research, um, most of the time you're basically testing your model. It's not the same as letting it emerge from the data, right? It's not data driven, it's model driven. So you start with the wrong, well, not the wrong, but you start with model A, then you'll get something and you start with model B, you'll also get something. And so it's difficult to see what, what value to attribute to the different results with those, all these different models. Right. I mean, is it even that much of a problem if the arcuate doesn't go to the IFG? Like maybe the critical speech motor regions are really more posterior than the IFG. That's kind of something that's been emerging out of a lot of different recent literature, I think. Well, that's true. But then this connection would still be useful if it's not for, um, I don't think it's necessarily exactly for motor speech, because I don't think that the IFG, even the posterior part really is motor at all. Mm -hmm. That for me is premotor cortex. But, um, you know, both uh, Petrides and uh, his colleagues in the MACAC, they did find connection to premotor in, uh, in some of the models, like uh, Friedrichi, she does have this, um, this connection with premotor cortex. So there, there you have your, uh, you know, your sensory motor sort of um, track, if you will, for speech. Yeah. And is that the main role? That, is that the most important role for this tract in speech and language, do you think? No, I think there's probably multiple roles uh, that, uh, you know, one thing that's interesting is to note that this track, for example, is is modified in people that, for example, we've been working on musician and others have two and other kinds of experts. And then you see that this tracks, uh, you know, musician, they don't necessarily engage the motor speech system. It's just that they engage this system. So maybe this is something about sensory motor more generally, um, multimodal integration, um, so other kinds of uh, phonological processing is also very possible if there's a connection to IFG posterior, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think these are some of the possible roles, but there's probably a lot of other roles given the connectivity is so extended. Yeah, it's like, it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of brain regions connected to a lot of other brain regions exactly it's not gonna have it's not gonna have a simple story i mean i think if we try and do do a simple story we're gonna be back with that you know that kind of simple model that you were arguing against earlier no um we in in the recent paper we did argue for maybe a bit more general role in auditory motor transformation not just for speech but also for uh for music uh, or singing, uh, because again, these tracks seem to evolve uh, as a function of different types of activities that are not necessarily speech at all. Um, so um, yeah, it's it's very and it's I mean I think with those kinds of drawings, like in the paper, you don't necessarily get the sense of how massive the track is. I mean, it's massive. Yeah. Okay, so we've kind of talked about the dorsal tracts, the arcuate and SLF components. Um, let's talk now about the ventral tracts. So, um, you start in your paper with the unsonate 
Can you tell us like where, where does that go and what do you think that that's involved in? Uh, so the NCNET track is one of the ventral tracks. So basically tries to connect uh, inferior frontal as well in uh, more like uh, anterior temporal regions to, to define it broadly. Um, so it's, it's hard to have a, a role in the semantic processing, uh, but uh, multiple other um, function I think are, are possible with this track as well. The entire temporal cortex and the temporal pole in particular being seen as a, uh, a semantic hub, yeah. uh, you know, that would make sense that there would be a function that would be related to semantic processing. But like for every other track, I don't think that any track is a very, just this one purpose. Yeah, no, not, we, we kind of like want to move past that, but like you could, I think there are still sort of differential importance of different brain regions and connections for, for different functions. And I agree. I mean, I think that the the evidence for a semantic role for the unsnip fasciculus is quite strong. I think so too, and I think that that's uh, that's a track that's. Uh, although I think it's a di- it's it's more of a difficult track to study. I mean, any track that's that goes uh, uh, sort of more like uh, medially into uh, the brain is a bit more difficult to assess uh, with some of the tools that we have now. But it seemed to be relatively stable and. Uh, in the function that people have attributed to it. Right. Um, okay. So apart from the unsonet, um, what other ventral tracks do you guys lay out in your model? Uh, we talk about the extreme capsule fiber system, uh, the inferior longitudinal fasciculus or ILF and the inferior frontooccipital uh, fasciculus or IFOF. Um, so those are tracks that, uh, that connect either more posterior region to uh, lower posterior region, but very posterior, like uh, occipital lobe, uh, onto uh, temporal, uh, anterior temporal cortex, or uh, in the case of the extreme capsule in the IF, um, IF, ILF, excuse me, um, more uh, <clears throat> inferior frontal and even um, regions around the insula into uh, the temporal cortex. So these, this is a connectivity that uh, connects um, the ventral part of the brain to the temporal lobe or the occipital lobe onto both the inferior frontal or frontal lobe and uh, uh, the temporal cortex. So there's like quite some controversy, right, about whether the whether there really is a connection between the occipital lobe and the frontal lobe through the IFOF. Right. Um, I think this is a track that um, we... Uh, that whose anatomy will probably become, uh, as it is more and more studied, um, the model will be refined. And um, actually this connection may or may not be um, validated. Right, yeah, because I think that the the guys that do the monkey stuff, um, they don't see direct connections between occipital and frontal, and they, they kind of argue that the IFOF that kind of emerges from DTI studies is really conflating other tracks, like maybe parts of the ILF, inferior, inferior longitudinal fasciculus, maybe parts of the extreme capsule tract. Um, you know, in DTI, you know, you don't really have, it never provides clear evidence that you're actually tracking a single fiber. It's true. It's true. There's also the case of the middle longitudinal fasciculus that's actually very, uh, that's been very little studied um, in the past uh, in human. Um, so where but- does that, where does that go? The middle longitudinal fasciculus, well, <laughs> that's another one for which I won't have such a clear answer, but the basic idea is that it would connect, at least it goes through the entire temporal cortex from anterior to posterior. That 
nobody so, uh, argues against. It's its posterior connectivity that's unclear. Um, does it go to um, the inferior parietal lobe, superior parietal lobe, or occipital uh, cortex? That and, and it runs mostly under the STG, right? It's like pretty dorsal in the temporal lobe. Yeah, it's um, it's a yeah, it's a it's a very deep track, and this could be why it escaped uh, attention for a while. It was you know first talked about in the eighties in the in the macaque, um, but um, currently I would say there's at least two um, two models that are conflicting about the anatomy of the. MDLF and the MDLF, the middle longitudinal fasciculus track. I mean, it's it's very interesting because no matter the definition, it could play a part in broadly defined language, but may, maybe more speech uh, than language uh, because of the the temporal cortex uh, connectivity. But um, so the two models are uh, the ones that like the the Macris model that proposed that it really does go to IPL, the inferior parietal lobe. And because mm-hmm. IPL, we talked about it before, right, with the arcuate fasciculus yep. um, being, you know, mainly composed of the angular and the supermarginal gyrus and those regions being involved for language and speech processing. Um, of, so, of course, a connectivity between the, the rest of the temporal cortex, including some of the primary auditory regions and those regions is interesting in the sense of language processing. But more recent models by the, the group of Calivas, um, they suggest a three components instead of two. Um, I don't know if that's that I said with the two were, but basically one in the Macris model goes to IPL. Uh-huh. So temporal cortex IPL, and the other one is temporal cortex SPL. So superior parietal lobule. Okay, I got it. But they place a lot of emphasis on the IPL, and then and that's why they in the they interpreted that that connectivity made it probably a region that played a role in language processing. Yep. But then in the further studies, all of it de- de- diffusion, uh, the connectivity to the IPL is contested. Okay. What are the, what is the alternative? It's that it gun, it runs sort of deep in it, but that it's not a termination and that the termination really is superior parietal lobe and um, even further uh, occipital lobe. Precuneous. Which would make it not as obvious as a language tract. Exactly. I, th- I think it would remain important because if uh, we have this tract, you know, voice and sound processing travel through the temporal lobe, right, somehow. Yeah. And so it could still be important in the preliminary steps. And then these are, I think this is one of also the, the point that we made in all of those papers where we tried to is that you know, language does not occur independently or suddenly in the brain. You know, it follows from, you know, attitude processing and, you know, voice processing and multiple steps. And so maybe the MDLF could be one of those paths that, you know, is involved in some of the pre-processing of sounds and before they're actually processed at the linguistic level. Right. Yeah. I mean, that would make sense with its sort of being underlying the superior temporal gyrus where things are still pretty auditory. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's, it would probably be more on the auditory than language. And we haven't really defined it. And I'm sure probably your listeners, they, they do know this, but, you know, we I keep on going back and forth between speech and language, but, you know, uh, there's not, it's not like there's a clear break between speech and language. And yeah, I think we, 
we don't all agree about what speech and what language is. Yeah, no, I never try and draw a hard distinction there. And I always like to talk to people that would consider themselves speech people. I mean, I just, same on the motor end too. I mean, whether it's perception or production, like I, I don't think that there's anything to be gained by drawing a distinction there. No, but it's just that it, the distinction exists mostly because I think of um, in the field of speech pathology. Um, yeah. Where they would distinguish a speech disorder from a language disorder. Um, right. But I think that I mean, there's validity to that. It's useful clinically, although like, you know, apraxia of speech, I think is something that very much straddles that, that border and makes the border a little bit not useful. Yeah. Mostly I, 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 I struggle with phonology because for me, phonology would be more speechy than languagey, but then, you know, with, for people with this strict distinction, then phonology is language. Oh uh, yeah. For me, phonology is language. But it depends on how you define language. Then again, it's just like, this is the point where sounds become like, uh, phonemes as well the, to me there's still like uh, below uh, like linguistic meaning and maybe for me language is when there starts to be meaning oh no language definitely includes phonology i mean like you go into a linguistics department like there's going to be syntacticians semanticists and ph- phonologists right i mean they're allowed in there they're they're mm-hmm. like well you'll be a phonetician too right that's different i mean yeah phoneticians <laughs> well, is different like i mean they're in linguistics departments too but like phonologists you know you know well, I know, but I, I feel like for me, it's actually, it's actually the interface. If I put it exactly how I, I see it, to me, that's the interface between speech and language. Ah, interesting. But um, for, for the MDLF, we, we had some results recently, but again, the, the diffusion results. And we, were, we sort of basically looked at how this tract age and how, um, you know, also the arcade fasciculus age and you know, whether there were correlation between this and speech processing. And we did find that it did correlate with uh, speech processing skills. So this is in aging people, you said? Yeah. Actually, it was, if I recall correctly, in the MDLF, it was pretty much age unrelated that you had a connection between how um, the metrics for this tract or how, uh, how the, the quality of the white matter in this tract and speech processing performance. Uh, it was speech and noise, so we can argue whether that's a speech or an auditory function all you want. <laughs> I don't have an yeah, answer. To it this. doesn't matter. <laughs> I think it's both. But it was correlated. Uh, there was some relation um, also with the archetesticulus for sure. But um, so I think it's still possible that this tract is, um, even if it doesn't go to IPL, I mean, in the model we use, though, we use the model that did go to the IPL. Um, okay. Um, cool. Is this paper published? Yes, uh, like maybe two years ago. Okay, I will link it in the podcast notes. Yeah, um, and then yeah, the more recently we yeah we looked at uh, <laughs> we looked at the arcuates in the aging uh, people that sing it and those who don't sing, and uh, we did find that the the arcuate fasciculus was different in singers and non-singers, but we couldn't find a relationship between um, their performance in uh, in, uh, in the speech perception of, uh, in, in the sense that the track was um, more developed in the singers, but that didn't make them better at the task. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a relationship for everyone with speech, but just it wasn't special okay. uh, for the singers. So... Yeah, so I think the MDLF, the way that I see it, and the arcuates, 
are two of the tracks that we uh, we need a lot more information about because the connectivity is really not clear. Um, some of the recent studies are convincing that because some of the studies have combined DT, diffusion. I'm, I, I refrain from saying DTI because it's not always DTI. Right. Diffusion MRI. Yeah. Um, and uh, dissections. I think that provides um, information. I think what's missing, but I don't know if it's possible, is so you know, like when you sort of test different models, how they fit uh, uh-huh. the data, right? So it would be nice to be able to do that and see, okay, if I use this model, how, how well does it account for the data versus that other model of the track? Yeah. And I think maybe that would help us sort of resolve some of these ambiguities. Um, so yeah, the ARCID fasciculus and the MDLF for me are the two very interesting tracks because <laughs> every time uh, you read a paper, you learn something new. Yeah, for sure. And the accurate certainly got plenty of attention, but the MDLF, not as much as you'd expect for yeah. a tract that basically runs anterior posterior underneath the superior temporal gyrus. I mean, that seems like a tract that we should be very interested in. But there's more study now. Like there's a, like, I think it's picking up slowly. Uh, but I think it's going to be from the other tree side that people will be interested in. Interested in. Uh, but it probably will uh, spill over to us as uh, even though it may not be done for the purpose of understanding the language connect connectome well it still will uh we'll still learn from it uh i think the auditory processing people <laughs> will probably jump on it yeah cool point. okay so um the last track that we haven't really talked about yet um that you have a recent paper about is called the frontal ashland tract um or the fat for those in the know um can you tell us about the fat yeah, uh, the FAT is such an interesting track, for me at least, because um, I've done most of my thesis work on the supplementary motor area and the pre-supplementary motor area. Uh-huh. So these are frontal, medial frontal regions that are involved in uh, sort of like conflict monitoring, response selection for speech and non-speech. Uh, these seem to be domain general regions. And so the frontal aslan track or FAT does connect this region to the inferior frontal gyrus. Uh-huh. And when I discovered that track, it was something to me that made, that made so much sense um, because um, even though the SMA and the pre-SMA are usually not in the model, certainly they're not in the classical models by any means, um, but I think they're getting acknowledgement a lot more that they play an important part. Yeah, no. Wernicke and Licktime didn't know anything about them. It was, I think, Penfield that was the first to really point out their role in language. Right, right, exactly. And um, so this track, basically, that's what it does. It connects those uh, uh, regions involved in both some something like I would say higher order motor planning and also executive function to this region that we've been talking about a lot because it's also the potential termination of the arcid fasciculus and one of the core region for language processing. Um, so that sort of connects a region that used to be thought as a motor region for speech, the IFG, which I would argue is not at all a motor region since it has no motor connection. Um, but it does connect this region to uh, centers that are involved in uh, some high level motor function. Um, and that that does make sense if you uh, think about, um, you know, going from, say, a motor plan to uh, a representation of a word, for example, like during lexical access or for speech production, like um, influency task, for example. And so 
that these are some of the roles that have been proposed for the distract that's being involved in fluency, for example. At least yeah. on the left side. And on the right side, maybe more an executive control role. But um, like with many of the other tracks that we talked about, this uh, the anatomy of this track is debated. I mean, that's interesting because that's a track that was discovered using diffusion MRI and not uh, um, labeling or just dissection, though it was validated afterwards with labeling and um, dissection. So I think it I, to me, I think it does exist, although I think some people still have doubts about this. And are the, you're saying that the terminations are in the IFG. Are they? Is it also in sort of ventral premotor cortex on the other side of the precentral sulcus, or is it really going into the IFG? Or is yeah. that what's up for debate? I, I haven't seen anything pointing to the premotor cortex. Now, I think that would make so much sense, of course, because uh, because these regions are supposed to be connected. Uh, but uh, I haven't seen this. But what I have seen is that there's a, sp- a Spanish team that's, uh, that's now talking about a, a, a big fat, what they call it, the extended fat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the title of their paper, first paper, was when the fat goes wide or something like this. <laughs> So a really cool title, uh, but basically they argue that the fat actually comprises the entire um, medial frontal region. So SMA, pre-SMA and anterior region to this, uh, uh-huh. making it, uh, and they argue that it uh, is related on the left to language. So really uh, consistent with what we have proposed, but that on the right, that it would be involved in working memory. Um, but um, so I think that... Um, yeah, I think the, it, it remains to be seen whether it's actually such a massive tracep. Because if it does involve the entire medial SFG, then it's this humongous. Right, yeah. There's an and enormous amount of cortex in there. That's Yeah, so then it probably will need to be segmented, just like we're trying to do with the arcuate, uh, to try to piece it out and understand what different pieces might be doing. But I think this was a very important discovery for language neurobiology, as well as, of course, connect uh, connectomics in, in general. Because uh, yeah, it's not every day that you discover a new track. No, it definitely makes sense that there has to be a connection. Um, you know, the role of the um, medial wall of the frontal lobe in speech and language is pretty clear. We've we've got like a you know we don't often see strokes there, but when we do see them um, from ACA strokes, anterior cerebral artery. You definitely have this sort of rather unique aphasia um, that involves basically a failure to initiate relatively right. spared repetition. It's very distinctive. The, um, it's called the SMA syndrome, right? That- yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, in the classic model, it would be called like a transcortical motor aphasia. But I don't, I don't yeah, I mean, there's probably other ways of thinking about it too. Are you an SLP? No. No, don't play that line. <laughs> Sorry, you just got this part. No, I just—I've always wondered if you you had a, a master degree in. No, no. Oh, hang on. Now my dog has like decided to like knock the door open. Hang on, let me get the dog out of here. Um. Okay. So uh, what were we saying? Yeah. The SME syndrome slash um what you were calling transcortical motor aphasia, but basically. Yeah. Uh, there are some, I mean, I've, I've, I've read that it can start with complete mutism, but, uh, but it does recover yeah. quite quickly. Exactly. That's what we see. Yeah. They're very, it, it can be really deceptive. It can look deceptively severe, but it, it recovers quite well. 
as well, so, which is great. Um, thank God. Yeah. I mean, but you know, a lot of aphasias recover really well for reasons that are very mysterious. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Well, we talked about the fat. Um, so thank you for going through all these tracks with us, uh, with, with me and our listeners. Um, I think we did a, I think we made a real good shot at trying to talk about something that's inherently very visual, um, but without having any visuals. Um, and, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I think, uh, you had this, uh, very great idea to do these podcasts. I've been enjoying myself listening to them. Oh, I'm glad you like, I'm glad you've listened to it. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun for me to make them and to like kind of meet new people and catch up with people that I, you know, have gotten to know over the years. So thanks a lot. And, um, yeah, have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. You too. Okay. Well, that's it for episode 10. If you'd like to learn more about Pascal's work, I've linked her lab website, the papers we talked about, and the society website in the show notes at langneurosci.org slash podcast. I'd like to thank Latine Bullock for editing the transcript of this episode. Thank you all for listening, and I hope to see you next time.